they would advance a lot of production money. Therefore, I was able to do what I wanted to do, make work that's bigger without kind of really thinking about commercial success. I'm no expert. A lot of times the material is new to me and the process, the approach is new to me, but I love that. When I get comfortable, I think I'm in trouble. That was a disastrous moment. I was like, okay, well, this is the end. This is really the end. That We're not going to be able to finish this in time. But it worked out. It always works out. Welcome to the Installation Art Podcast, the world's number one and only podcast about installation art and the people who work with it. I found my today's guest by leafing through my collection of Toshin books. You know, the ones Art Now, 100 Contemporary Artists. Yes, her works are in those books. Korean-American artist Wonju Lim is based in Los Angeles, and she often works with what she calls disposable materials, such as plexiglass or foam core, more recently latex and vinyl lettering. Her work has been exhibited all over the world, published in books, and acquired by important public art collections such as MoCA LA and the Hammer Museum. She also teaches art at University of California. Stick around to hear some jaw-dropping and hair-raising stories. Spoiler, someone ends up in an emergency room. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Wonju Lim. We start from the very beginning. (laughs) Tell us, where did you grow up? I was born in Gwangju, South Korea. And I was eight when my family immigrated to Los Angeles. Uh, This is the late 70s. So I grew up in L.A. most of my my young childhood. Mm -hmm. And were you a creative kid? Yes and no, and that I was not one of these kids. I mean, when I was really young, I remember like drawing all the time, but all kids draw all the time. But I think I was creative in that there were aspects of me that caused a lot of problems. <laughs> By the time I was in high school, I was not a, a, a good kid, always getting into trouble. What kind of trouble? <laughs> Dating older guys, drugs. I've always done well, pretty well in school academically, but there was this kind of two side of me and then the other side was out partying all night and then I would go to class. And so I think getting myself in trouble is a a creative act of some sort. Didn't know it back then because I was always in trouble (laughs) as a teenager, but I think um, that was very much of a creative act. (laughs) Being rebellious, I think is quite creative. Yeah, for sure. It's a it's a yeah. form of self-expression. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And questioning authority, questioning mm. you know, systems. I think these are like things a lot of, you know, creative kids do. Yeah, I had a punk phase definitely in high school as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. What did you want to be growing up during that rebellious phase? Did you have any ideas? When I was really young, when I was not so rebellious, I wanted to be Connie Chung. I don't know if you know Connie Chung. She was the only Asian broadcaster. That was when I was really young. In a way, she was the only Asian role model. And so I really wanted to be a journalist or a broadcaster. But but I think by the time I was in high school, 
I wanted to be in a creative field of some sort. I don't think I was thinking specifically about being a visual artist. I think I wanted to be like a set designer or some kind of designer or something creative. I was not exposed to you know visual art. I was I didn't go to museums. Hmm. It was not an option that I even had in mind. <laughs> yeah. But is there something you remember from your childhood or your youth that is now reflected in your work or the way you make your work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think I would have to go back really young. Maybe the first year I was eight uh, when we came to the States from Korea. And I remember this particular, well, not one, one moment, but there were many moments. My father bought a car for the family and it was our first car. And a night out or evening out would be going to McDonald's for dinner. And we would get in the car, it was a, a burgundy Chevrolet, I think, Malibu. And this is the mm -hmm. late 70s. And we were like, we would go for a drive on the 10 freeway, on the 405 freeway. And right around San Pedro and Long Beach, there's a huge area with a lot of oil refineries. And I remember, I mean, back then I didn't know that it was an oil refinery, but I remember like the back of the car looking out into this amazing city with dazzling lights. It was some like fantastical future city. And I think that really resonated with me. It's something that has to do with the idea of the new, something that has to do with the idea of fantasy. I think in some ways, a lot of my installations kind of is, is a way of like recalling that one moment. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, interesting. So what did you end up studying after high school? I studied architecture. You know, I really wanted to be an architect. It was a creative mm -hmm. field. And at least, you know, the 18-year-old me thought that that was a very practical field. And mm -hmm. I was always interested in space and I was interested in buildings and I love drafting. And so that's what I studied as an undergrad. And even after college, I wanted to be an architect. So I worked at a few architectural firms and I just did not like the practice at all. I would just, right, it was not for me. You know, it's just like this big office with lots of people and I was just stuck um, behind a drafting table. And it was right at this moment where architects started using computer-aided drafting. And so I did learn, you know, uh, digital drafting but I think I was hand drafting at the time. So that's what mm -hmm. I was doing like every day. And it was super boring. There was no room for creativity there. Um, yeah. And also it was a very masculine feel, you know, that is to say like those that were, you know, project managers or my bosses were all men. And I felt like there was no room for me in many ways, not just because of gender, but for many ways. And it just, I, I did not like the practice. So it was after three or no more like four years between undergrad and grad by recommendation of my teacher from undergrad who you know always thought that I should go to art school really suggested that I should apply to an art program and I got into art center in Pasadena and that's where I got my MFA mm -hmm. so it was basically your teacher in architecture who encouraged <laughs> and inspired you and and made you think that you could be an artist yes <laughs> mm. What kind of work did you get into during the MFA? Yeah, so 
I, it was initially, it was so awful. I was, you know, again, <laughs> I was not exposed to contemporary art or any art for that matter. And what I knew at the time to be art was, you know, paintings and drawings. And I think, you know, I think that's true for a lot of maybe undergrad students, maybe not graduate students, but that's what I thought I had to do. So I was painting maybe the first month or two in, in grad school. And one of my teachers <laughs> said, what are you doing? These are awful. Why are you forcing yourself to do something that you think is art that you're not very good at? Why don't you start with something that you know something about? Like you studied architecture. So why don't you do something with that? And in art, one could be free as opposed to in architecture. So my first piece I ever made is titled Proustian Bedroom, and it's a series of drawings on the walls of my studio and a painting on the floor, and there were a series of elevation drawings on the walls and then a floor plan painting on the floor, recalling all the bedrooms that I've ever lived in, and mm. that was my first piece, so that series of superimposed elevation and floor plan drawings in my studio. Basically, you jumped straight into making installation art. <laughs> I had no yeah. idea that's what I was doing at the time. <laughs> but of course, yes. And that piece it really was such an um, important piece for me, not only because it was my first art, but also because it got me really thinking about expansion and contraction of time and space and the idea of how a space is perceived in a moving audience, uh, a, you know, navigating viewer. And mm -hmm. there were a lot of things that came out of that very first piece that, to a certain degree, I'm still exploring. Like what? Like my very recent piece that I completed is a really, really large installation with, I don't even know how many, like 120, 150 pieces of architectural models. And these models are made of different materials, different materials that absorb light and reflect light and, and block light that create shadows onto the walls. And so there's all these layers of, of fantastical places that kind of superimpose. And these objects are on a revolving platform and there are multiple lights that are still lights and because the objects are moving the effect of the movement and the light creates this kind of a series of shadows that superimpose that get like really big and then small depending on the object's relationship to light so tell me about your first larger project or your first big opportunity Art Center had this program where they sent recent graduates on a residency program to Berlin. It was every year one student, a recently graduated student, it was kind of an award, like a grant, uh, grant residency. And so I received that as soon as I got out of school. And so I went to Berlin. And I think that was such an amazing experience. And a part of the grant and residency program is to have a really big exhibition in this Kunstler House, a residency house, Kunstler House Britannian. And that was my first big solo exhibition. And I created a piece called Longing for Wilmington. And it comprises of hundreds of architectural models made of color plexiglass and foam core board. And there were three projections onto the sculpture, but also on and through the sculpture that cast shadows mm. in the exhibition space. 
And that work was very much about, and it was not that it's about, like I'm trying to illustrate it, but it was, it kind of touches at that moment that I described earlier about like the first time I ever saw this fantastical city uh, that was part of Los Angeles. And Wilmington happens mm. to be that one part of Los Angeles where there are a lot of uh, ore refineries. And so the title really kind of stems from there. So yeah, that was the big first um, installation that I made and in, in my first solo show. Yeah, so that really also <laughs> then draws right back into that childhood experience you had. That's mm -hmm. very interesting. <laughs> How long did you have during that residency to prepare that solo show? The residency was supposed to be six months, and I almost stayed there for almost a year. And mm. so it was after about around six months to prepare for that show. I had a pretty good idea what I wanted to do, but then only after living in Berlin for a few months, I realized like this would be a, a, the perfect piece to make, the idea of longing and longing not for anything specific, but like longing for longing, longing for an object that does not exist or may never exist, but just kind of this constant craving or longing for something, I think was, uh, was kind of appropriate and also something I was going through in Berlin at the time. It was my first time in Europe ever. Yeah. <laughs> And since then, uh, what would you say has been the biggest opportunity so far in your art career? I mean, that's so so hard to say. That was a big one for sure. The beginning of my career, there were many opportunities that kind of set up the trajectory of my art practice, of my career. There were many moments, you know, one of them was kind of being in this biennial at the Hammer Museum called Snapshot. Another one was having a major art dealer that I was working with, Max Hetzler, in Berlin. And then also, you know, getting a, an art dealer that represented me in Los Angeles. So both commercially, but also like there were a lot of museum opportunities. Yeah, I was in the Guangzhou Biennial. I think that kind of exposed my work to Asia. I don't think there was one thing. There's this kind of accumulation of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it's hard, to, really hard to say it's like one or two things. Can you tell me more about how the gallery representation came about for you? How did that happen? It was in Berlin. I was out of school for about a year or so. And it was in Berlin. I met my first art dealer in Los Angeles, and that's Patrick Painter. And then around the same time, I met Max Hetzler in Berlin. I, you know, I was, again, a, quite a young artist. And mm -hmm. there at the time, you know, they were kind of older, both in age and in terms of their kind of position in the art world. That is to say, they're like, you know, blue chip galleries and they didn't work with young artists so much. And so it was really intimidating a lot of times. Um, yeah, I bet. And, but that was a, <laughs> it was a learning experience. But they were amazing because they allow for production money. They would advance a lot of production money. Therefore, I was able to do what I wanted to do, make work that's bigger without kind of really thinking about um, commercial success, yeah. you know, without thinking about making smaller objects. And so as a result of that, I think I got a lot of museum exhibitions. Because mm -hmm. you were able to make some larger works, more yes. ambitious yeah. works. More ambitious, longer term, higher production. Yeah. And, you know, and Everything is a compromise, and this isn't to say I look down on artists that make smaller works for various reasons. 
But I was fortunate enough at the very beginning that I was able to do what I not only want to do, I feel that I'm best at. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not a painter. And this, again, has nothing to do, you know, nothing other than I'm just not a painter. (laughs) You know, I'm not an amazing drawer. You know, I'm not a two-dimensional thinker or a two-dimensional maker. It's just not the way I work. I'm very physical. I like walking around and dealing with art objects with my body and my body, time, and space. These are three main, main tools for my work. And that means, you know, I have to make things that are really big, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so these dealers who, you know, gave me the opportunity where I could do what, what I want to do and what I could do best. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing opportunity to be able to have that funding in advance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did they approach you? How did you get introduced to them? They approached me. It was during my exhibition at the Kunstlerhaus Britannia when I made Longer from Wilmington. They saw the work and they liked the work and had a few conversations. So they approached me. And a lot of art dealers that I met after that, you know, through them, they introduced me to other art dealers. And then it happens, and I think it happens in so many different ways, how that kind of dealer to artist relationships get established. But for me, it's nothing that I kind of initiated. I- I'm really not good at that. You know, I've been doing this for 20 some years and people ask me like, how do you, I could tell them how I got started, but I can never tell anybody what they need to do (laughs) or what I need to do. You know, (laughs) I don't know what I need to do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What about the biennials, the Hammer Museum? Did you have to apply for something? Were you invited? How did that work out? These things always, they're by invitation. I hear that they're, they're more of like these application processes, but for me, that was never my experience. And it's not because, oh, I'm so successful. It's not that. I think, I think is, you know, it's, even though the art world is international, global, I think it's a very small art world still, you know, and people know each other and people know uh, major galleries or even when they're smaller galleries, you know, it's word of mouth. And yeah. so it's always by invitation. And it's also through establishing relationships with curators. I you know for me, my relationship with the curators that I've worked with in the past are really, really important, more than any art dealers. They're the ones that kind of support me and what I do in many ways. Of course, financially, they're not doing that like as an art dealer could do. Yeah. But I think having a relationship with curators is really, really important for me. And so it is through word of mouth and through invitations that I am able to exhibit at biennials and museums. Mm. Yeah, very interesting perspective. It's all about the personal connections. It's about personal connections. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Again, I think, you know, my practice has been, it's been since like 2000. So it's been like 23 years. And I know that it's a little bit different for younger artists now. I do know that. I hear that. And I actually kind of see it too. Mm. I think it's a slightly a different art world right now. Let's talk a bit about your process. Do you build everything yourself? Most of the time, definitely, yeah. I like having control of everything that gets produced. 
there are few few times that I did had to hire a fabricator. For example, there are certain uh, like large plexiglass boxes sometimes that I use. The one right behind me, for example, it's the sculpture that's inside of this vitrine that's made out of yellow plexiglass. And that is something mm. that I fabricated, you know. But then the inside, the sculpture part is something that was done here in the studio. So most, I would say 95% of the time, I make things in the studio and I have to touch it and I have to feel it with my body. I have to have an experience with the artwork in time and in space. That's so important for me. How do you decide what uh, material or what medium you're going to use for a specific project? <laughs> it's never clear. I use a lot of disposable materials like foam core, plexiglass, paper. But then I also use a lot of like, you know, um, for example, there's a series of sculptures that I've been working on for, I don't know, not that long, but maybe let's say about a year, year and a half. And I've tried all sorts of different types of materials. I wanted to make a mold of this model. And I used rubber silicone. I used different types of materials. I used latex. I went back to rubber silicone. So back and forth. And it just, it what feels right. Rubber silicone, even though it's very much like latex, it was not the right material. And so now I'm going back to latex. And I think I, I will settle with latex. I'm no expert. I'm no expert <laughs> on making molds or casting objects or even working with latex. A lot of times the material is new to me. And yeah. the process, the approach is new to me. But I love that. I think when I get comfortable... I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> At least that's the way I think about it. Like, wow, I know how to do this. Now I really, I got this. I'm going to make it better next time. That better is, I don't know. I don't know about that better, At least <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I like it when I don't know exactly what I'm doing. But there is this fine line between like, oh, I'm so not familiar with this. Oh, now I'm getting the hang of it. Oh, now I'm really having this intimate relationship with this <laughs> latex. I, now I know how you kind of cure and how you flop and how many layers of latex that I need to make to make it, you know, hard like this, very soft like this. And just, you know, when it surprises me a little bit, when I'm not so good at it, that's the, the line. That's the point where I get very excited. And that excitement comes through in the work. Sometimes it fails and failure is the best way, I think, to work with the material and whatever failure might mean. That is to say, maybe it's not standing up the way it should stand up and that it mm. just wants to flop. Like gravity has won and I've lost or something. You know, that's mm. like the, the art object saying, well, this is what I want to be. And I have to listen to that. That's why I say when I know exactly what I'm doing, this is not a good place. <laughs> right. So your process is basically always learning about the material. Always learning. How do you even come up with this idea? Oh, I'm going to use latex, a material that I've never used before. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's, it's, it's not so much. Yeah. So go back to that body of work. It never began with, I want to use latex, mm -hmm. uh, a material I never used before. Is something like, how can there be a visual articulation of something that I want to do in the instability of an object or instability of a thought? And so I could do that with jello. I could do that with bubble gum. I could do that with spit. I could do, you know, so there are like a lot of different materials that get tested. 
And I said, oh, I really like the way this thing droops. I like the color of this. Or sometimes even the smell, you know, I like the smell of latex, these kind of things. So then I, you know, I discovered the material. Oh, even though I'm not totally sure, I, I make it go through a lot of tests. And mm -hmm. then I know like, yeah, latex would be the best way to visually articulate this idea, I mean, this project has to do with the idea of inverting a memory. You know, if this is like, it's crazy, it doesn't even make sense. How do you invert a memory, right? <laughs> and so that's why this material has to be stretchy and that I could like make something and like turn it inside out. And latex at the end uh, is the best material. <laughs> I'm still awful at it. <laughs> I'm not good at it. I'm really not good. <laughs> so that means that you, your starting point for your projects is a concept, an idea. Is that it? What about the space that you're going to exhibit in? Is that important? Sometimes it is. A lot of times it is. I take that back. It always is. It's just that there are different levels of intentions. When I do a site visit, let's say, for example, just being in that exhibition space that I'm going to have an exhibition in a year from that time or something, that is already kind of really fixed in some ways. But there are times that I don't know the space that it's going to go in, or I've never been there, might have just seen a picture or something like that. And so the intention of site specificity is something that is not part of the work. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do start with an idea of some sort or an idea more than a concept, I think, but ideas could always change. Just like the material is flexible or the tools could be flexible, the processes could be flexible, I think the idea could be flexible. The idea is just merely a jumping point. It's just a point of departure. That's where I start. And I feel like I need an idea. Some artists don't need an idea of some sort. I need an idea. I need an interest that's mm -hmm. specific to a body of work or specific to a large installation. And I feel that it's a good excuse. I need an excuse to make work. You know? yeah. And that excuse could be like ore refineries or fantastical cities, or it could be, you know, inverting memory or something like that. It's, you know, a lot of times there's stupid ideas or stupid interests. I, I really mean it. You know, people think like, oh, this concept that must be so smart and that must be so clever. No, I think great work. You know, a lot of great works I've seen, they start from a really stupid idea. Because <laughs> I think ideas are just ideas, you know, they're just in your mind. Everybody has ideas. And I've had great ideas. I've had awful ideas. And that's true for, I think, not just artists, everybody, right? But they're just ideas. Ideas are not work. They're not yeah. artwork. No. Yeah. <laughs> so do you always have to be making something? Are you wanting to be in the studio every day, even if you don't have a specific exhibition or installation project that you're working toward? I'm kind of in between. I have friends, they're in the studio, like nine to whatever, you know, nine o'clock at night, every single day, or Monday through Friday, or, you know, they're there from like three in the afternoon until three in the morning, every single day. I'm not I'm definitely not one of those artists. I also have friends, they're only project driven. I'm somewhere in between. But I do need to have, again, a reason. And that reason does not have to be an exhibition. It could just be like something that I really want to see. I want to test different materials. But I do have to have a reason. Yeah. Tell me about a time when 
something wasn't working or didn't go to plan at a critical moment, like during installation or just before an <laughs> exhibition? And how did you deal with it? There are many moments like this. I think it's because most of my work have to be installed in situ, right? So I have to plan ahead. And I could only plan ahead to a certain degree. There are certain things that are beyond my control. And so I do it the best I can, but there's never a time when everything works out exactly as a plan, right? It's just impossible. And so, you know, there's all these contingencies that's involved. But most of the time, I do install and finish before the opening. The day of the opening, I like to go to a, a massage, go to a spa, mm -hmm. you know, and just really relax. And then I go to my opening really relaxed. So that's, <laughs> that's about 75% of the time. That works out more than not. But there are other times, so it's like everything goes wrong. One that really stands out is I was invited to be in the Canary Island Art and Architectural biannual mm -hmm. and there were seven i think there were seven islands it was the whole canary islands all of those we were taken to different sites and we did site visits and i really wanted to show in this really old old i forget the year that it was built but it was like 700 year old building in the island of fuerteventura which is one of the smaller islands of canary islands and i was there for about two weeks I visited that site twice and prepared everything as much as I possibly can. And the work that I installed there was a um, series of uh, projections of the uh, based on the raw footage that I collected on the island mm -hmm. onto like wallpaper murals of typical island sites, you know, like California or I don't know. Caribbean islands, and there were a series of these wallpaper that I had to paste onto the walls and at that time, they were renovating the building. They were at the very end of it, of course. And so we had about a week and a half or something like that before the opening. And all of a sudden, they have no hot water. And so in order to make this paste for the wallpaper to go on the walls, we had to add hot and cold water and get it like nice and lukewarm and then make this paste. And it was a long, really crazy process because the installation space was so humongous. So we did mm -hmm. about half of it and then now the, 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 there's no hot water. And so this is Fuerteventura. There are no places really you could go to. And so some small little restaurant that was about 30 minute walk away, we just took like a bunch of buckets and just went to the restaurant, hey, could we have some hot water? And they're like, we have, and of course, you know, my Spanish is like an LA Spanish, right? But they knew what I was talking about. It was me and my assistant. We're like, some hot water, please. And they have no hot water. So they were boiling the water for us. And so, of course, by the time we walked back, it was lukewarm, which was the right temperature and so on. <laughs> so that was a disastrous moment. I was like, okay, well, this is the end. This is really the end. That we're not going to be able to finish this in time. But it worked out. It always works out. There was never a time where it didn't work out. How many trips did you have to do with the buckets to get it all done? Oh, it was a good a full day and a half. I remember wow. it was two days. I don't know how many, but it was just like two buckets each, four buckets. And then we would use that for one go and then another one and then another one. It took us about a week to install just the wallpaper. and so. After about two days, the hot water came back on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds 
pretty stressful and tiring. Yeah, yeah. But biannual situations are always stressful. You know,、yeah. like there, there are times like okay, nobody has a ladder or nobody has a drill gun. You know, we're all fighting for <laughs> one drill gun and are sneaking away or something.、Um, I remember it with the same exhibition. There was like one guy who was fluent in English, and we're all fighting for his time to translate. <laughs> you know, this is like constant. So at the end is a struggle. We're just fighting all the time, like for the stupidest things. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the lesson is always bring all of your own tools and put labels on them. <laughs> totally, but even then, even、yeah. then, there's always something. Somebody told me, I think it was a Guangzhou biennial. He just went and got some wood and just built a ladder himself. Ah,、uh, what? Wow, that's very resourceful. Yeah, that's the only thing he could do. Yeah, the Guangzhou Biennial is also really crazy too. There are a lot of crazy stories with that. Well,、yeah. tell me, tell me a crazy story. The Guangzhou Biennial. Oh God, how did it go? It was so stressful. There was some miscommunication. There were two things that's really memorable. I think the Guangzhou Biennial was two thousand three or four. So this is a very long time ago. So I'm trying to recall. But this is what I remember. That I've been asking for some small tool. I forget what it was. I think it was maybe some cotton rag or something like that because I had to like wipe some things off. And like for two days, I couldn't find.、It. They wouldn't give it to me, or they were just too busy. So I went to the main preparer's office, and there were lots of people there. There were like a whole crew of people, and I just saw the main guy just screaming at everybody, and the whole place is really quiet. And then I, I, for me, I was so desperate. I was like, I don't care. So I've been asking for this. Can I please? And somebody just kind of pulls me, and then pulls me down. And then this guy, he didn't even, he didn't throw it at me. He just threw it at the the the, the first voice he heard. He just threw a stapler gun like towards me. And this other person just grabbed me so that my head, you know, so that he misses my head. <laughs> oh my god! He's <laughs> like, okay. All right, so I'm gonna crawl away. I really, literally crawled out of there because <laughs> this is no place to be. Because everybody was so, and th- there were no artists in the room. I think there were no artists. It was just people that were helping for the biennial, and they just knew their boss. Like he has a temper, and he will throw things at you. Wow, <laughs> that is. I know, isn't that crazy? Yeah. And then the same biennial, there was a miscommunication. That's what that was, and somebody locked the main exhibition room during the opening. It was a private opening, and people could not get in. So that I go to my part was was not in the main building. I go to my part. Somebody put this kind of a tape across so they couldn't enter the room. I don't know、uh-huh. what that was. It was crazy. It's just, a lot of it has to do with miscommunication. <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. So it it was kind of like this is closed off. You can't get into the opening. <laughs> yeah, and and I think not just Guangzhou, and I don't want to talk shit about Guangzhou Biennial, but I think a lot of these kind of biennial situation is kind of getting to know the culture that helps a lot. So there's、mm-hmm. a lot of cultural differences. The way European culture or Northern European culture, the way they go about doing business or you know getting things done, is very different. Let's say in South part of Korea or 
in Spain or yeah. in Africa somewhere. There's a lot of cultural differences. So there's a lot of room for miscommunication. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, these things you only figure out once you've lived there. Right, right. Do you always have to be personally present to install your work? No, there were, there were plenty of times when the work got installed. I would like to be, especially when it's there, like big in installations. So I would like to be, but sometimes I can't, or sometimes the work is in a collection and they just let me know that there's an exhibition. I don't get invited to be at the opening or to install the work. And so they just have to follow install instruction that I provided. Mm -hmm. And does that usually work? I saw pictures. They look pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, your plan of getting a massage on opening day is sounding really good, actually. Yeah, it's the <laughs> best thing. It really is the best thing. Get plenty of sleep the night before and yeah. just forget about everything and get a massage and have really good lunch and walk into your exhibition as if it's not your own as if you're going to another person's exhibition. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, great tip. <laughs> I think I'll steal that. <laughs> Do you ever get post-exhibition blues? Yes, of course. I first get the blues when the work leaves the studio because a lot of times I've been with the work for over a year intimately, right? Then everything gets packed and it goes somewhere else for the exhibition. And so there's a little bit of sadness um, that happens. But then what's great about that, you know, it's that I get to install the work a lot of times in the exhibition space. So it's like being reacquainted with an old lover or something. Ah, there you are. Oh, I didn't know you were so beautiful. Or, oh, wow, what a, you know, like I've forgotten about you or something. Oh, no wonder I was attracted to you. You know, there's something quite fresh when, when the work is seen outside of the studio. So there's that. But when it comes to post-exhibition blues, I think a lot of it has to do with people giving you so much attention right? You know, everybody's like, they want to talk to you. And often, the, for, at least for me, the exhibition happens outside of my home city. And yeah. so then I just go to a really lonely hotel room by myself, you know? Mm. So that, that extreme is something that is really, it's, it's hard, I think. It's really kind of emotionally hard to, you know, have a lot of people around you and then like just being alone. I love being alone in general, you know, like I'm more productive alone I get a lot of energy. When I'm around people, my energy gets sucked out. You know, I gain a lot of energy by myself when I'm thinking alone, producing alone. And so it's not so much like I want, or I hate the attention, want or need the attention or people around me all the time. But that's what happens, I think, you know, between exhibition and then going into the hotel room at night. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit depressing. <laughs> what happens to the work? after the exhibition is over? Sometimes it comes back. Sometimes they're sold and it goes to a collection. Kind of the obvious kind of things. And ideally, you know, you want it to go to a good collection. Ideally, you want it to go to a museum collection or you want the collector who bought it to donate to a major museum collection. Yeah. I just deinstalled a show that was in Sacramento. It was a major exhibition, so I deinstalled a huge installation, boxed everything, helped them create everything, and now the work is going to come into my studio, and so now I need to make room in my studio or get a storage room. 
Yeah. That's <laughs> the endless conundrum of storage. Storage, yeah. <laughs> Do you ever reuse elements of an installation in a different work? Most of the time I don't. This one, I just had a survey show in Sacramento. And mm -hmm. part of a huge installation got broken up into different um, sculptural pieces for this particular exhibition. And I know that, you know, it's a survey show. I know that it's not for collection. It's not going to be sold anywhere. And so it's going to come back, you know, as one big installation. Most of the time, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Or I already have some kind of a modular system when I start working on it. So it's like they could be broken up into all these different pieces, but they function as one piece. There are a few pieces that work, that work like that. Is that for practical considerations or just because you want to make it like that? I mean, I think I want to make it like that. The one that I'm just talking about right now, a piece that I finished about six months ago was shown and I deinstalled that. And that work is a huge installation that took over, I, I can only think in feet. So it was like 60 some feet by 30 some feet like as one installation. But there are 12 units, 12 parts to it. And the title of the whole installation is this long sentence by Marcel Proust. But individual works are different clauses within the long sentence. So they could work as one piece, but if they could get broken up into 12 different places, I mean, that would be awesome. You know, so that they get fragmented. They're fragments in different collections, um, different exhibitions. <laughs> Are you concerned with making your work, quote-unquote, archival quality? As much as I could, I do, but that's not my concern, really. I mean, like the latex piece or latex body of work that I was telling you about, I know that, you know, like Eva Hess's work, right? <laughs> latex over many, many years is just kind of yellow and get more brittle, but it has to be done in latex. So that's, you know, I do think about it, but... It has to be that material. So I will choose that material, even though it will kind of, you know, change over time. Mm. I try to, but then that's not my, my biggest concern at all. And when a work gets sold, do you have specific like instructions, how to display it? How do you pass it on? Yeah. So a lot of my big installation, I have like install instruction this thick, like pages and pages and pages wow. of like every move. And so they could follow the instruction and install one, one piece at a time to make a larger piece. They could do that. I feel that as long as it doesn't compromise the integrity of the work, if they want to show it slightly different, I'm absolutely for that. I think it's great. You know, I teach and one artist that I talk about a lot is this German artist, uh, Charlotte Posineski, and she made this work where she just gave blueprints, instruction how to make something, mm. these units. And I think the instruction was you can make it out of cardboard or you can make it out of metal sheet. These are the two main materials that they could use. And, you know, one could make, anybody could really kind of, as long as they have access to the blueprint, they could make these objects. And I really like that idea that, you know, it's not such a precious thing. You know, that, that it's not something to kind of like 
I don't know, a precious, minute thing that, you know, that has to be like preserved all the time. Yeah. yeah. But I do give install instruction. I also give, you know, cleaning instruction. I call out the materials in case they need to restore it. I do the best I can, but at some point, you know, restoration is like beyond my my capability. Hmm. That sounds very elaborate, that whole process of putting that together. But it's also fun. I like it. I really you like, like organizing everything. You know, I really like documenting and organizing everything and putting everything, like filing everything away. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what role does the audience play in your work? Is it important that they interact? Yeah. I mean, I'm so not into interactive artwork, you know, that is to say, you know, you have to put your hand inside of this or like something turns on because yeah. it's got all this kind of sensors and I, I'm so not into that. But I think sculpture, three-dimensional work, installation work inherently requires a moving body and there has to be this kind of a subject, a navigating viewing subject that subject has a very specific relationship with an art object. I think this, this is a very kind of, uh, it's inherently in the three-dimensional work. I like to kind of emphasize that a little bit. And so when I make large installations with video projections, often they're on the floor so that the viewing audience, their body, you know, blocks or interrupts the, the image being projected onto the sculpture, casting parts of their body, the, the shadows of their bodies onto the sculpture and onto the um, exhibition wall. I don't think of it necessarily like, oh, it's about shadows and the shadows of the, the viewers. It more has to do with interruptions and interactions between the art object and the audience. Mm-hmm. Has anything ever gotten damaged during an exhibition? Yes, <laughs> it happens because there, you know, some of these are plexiglass models. They're stacked on top of each other. Yeah, it looks quite fragile. Yeah, yes, you can knock them over. I mean, it's it's not as fragile as they look, but yeah, sure. There was this one time during an opening, somebody fell onto one part of it, they and fell. just like, yeah, like, and so. He broke a good, not that many pieces, maybe nine or 10 pieces. But the worst part was he had to go to the emergency room because oh, there no. was like, he had a major cut. Uh, I think it was on his arm. And so he had to get stitches. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's... Yeah. That could be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That sounds uh... stressful. Oh gosh. Were you there during that opening? No, somebody called me on the phone just, you know, after the, the, the spa and just before the opening. <laughs> or maybe it was during the opening and I was a little bit late. I was about to yeah. go to the opening. And they're like, uh, we had to reduce that piece a little bit. <laughs> they still showed it, but just that yeah. nine, nine or ten pieces were gone. But that's fine. I mean, there are times when it's so stressful, you know, and it's just like, oh, my God, I could be so hard to deal with, you know, when, when the pressure is on. But then afterwards, I just laugh about it, you know, because there's like, yeah, it's, I never have really bad memories. Mm. Even when it was really horrible, I never had bad memory because it was just at that time. And at the end of the day, it, this is not a big deal. I could always remake the work. Yeah, it's not the biggest deal. <laughs> 
So how did you respond in that moment? What was going through your head when they called you about that? Of course, I was like, oh, shit, this is the opening. Nobody could see my work. Of course, like the first thing I'm thinking is like, forget about that guy who who knows, you know, how how he was hurt. I was like, oh, my God, they got to shut this down. And they're like, no, no, no. You know, they had to be taken away. I was like, what happened? This guy fainted. Is uh, what I heard, and then fell on top of the big installation. And then I was just like, oops, is he okay? No, he had to go to the emergency room. <laughs> and I was like, oops, yeah, that's that's too bad. But the piece is okay, right? I could always remake those nine pieces. <laughs> it's totally selfish, right? Well, I mean, the show must go on, right? That's yeah, the yeah. number one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there were a lot more, but that's the one that really... It was at North Miami Museum of Contemporary, Mocha Nomi, Museum of Contemporary, North Miami. That's where that was. I'm sure there were so many other times and I'm forgetting. (laughs) Who has been the best to work with? Your favorite collaborators or curators or institutions? That's like a real highlight for you. Of course, you know, some some curators are just awesome. So I won't name any curators. I won't name anybody, really. It's not the name. There are certain crews, you know, after all the legitimate stuff has been done, you go there to install. And I have to count on the main preparator of the institution. And that person, the capabilities of that person just could, like, make or break my experience there. Yeah. And you know, so somebody who is very capable and somebody who's very calm mm-hmm. and who really know what they're doing really helps to make the install time go smoothly. And so I always, always really rely on the crew that's there. That's so important during the install because, you know, when it is like a week, 10 days, sometimes two weeks of install, you know, it's the 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 curator could do only so much, but it's the install crew that's mm. most important. The most recent one was this crew at the San Jose Museum, San Jose, California. They're really awesome. They really, really know what they're doing. I'm trying to remember some other people. I mean, there are many, many of them, but I would say that's my most recent exhibition, the crew yeah. that I could think of that really helped me out. And what are you like yourself during the stall period? I'm a control freak. <laughs> I could be bossy. Yeah, I'm, no, I don't really micromanage, but I just really want everybody to do their thing so we could do this and don't waste time, you know. <laughs> so there's that. Under pressure, I could be a big bitch. I could be really, really harsh and really I could just, I'm not good. Under pressure, I turn into an ugly person. That's why I try my best to not put myself in those situations where I'm pressured for time. And then, you know, during install time, at the end, I like to get drunk, you know, and just <laughs> every night, like after the install, just like drinking and just getting drunk. <laughs> because I think, again, like, you know, you have to be a planner, I think. You know, there, there are other artists that are that's not like this but for me like I really have to be a planner and so at some point I really do have to let go (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so at the end of the day it's really important that I do that do you let the install crew know that you might get a little bit spicy if things don't go right 
No, because <laughs> I never planned to. I don't. Yeah, I never really planned to. I mean, it's not that I get spicy all the time, but under pressure, I do. Yeah. And so, yeah, <laughs> I don't let them know because then they'll be, you know, on the edge. Or I don't want them to to be like that during regular time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But but I think but I think afterwards, then I <laughs> then I'm like yeah, that's how I get when I'm like under pressure. Sorry. <laughs> Right. Okay. Like, don't take it personally. This is not about me. It's about the work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you approach the commercial aspect of installation of your work and the process of selling pieces? Is there something you consider when you're making your work? I think the answer to this question is similar to the materials question, like the process and the material is that I have to let the work be what it is. And surprisingly, one would think like smaller works sell more or mm -hmm. more easy to sell. And that's, I'm sure that's absolutely true. In my case, most of the larger pieces, they've been acquired by, you know, institutions like big foundations or museums. Often it's the collectors that buy the work and they donate it. Mm -hmm. So... That's how it gets acquired to in a lot of museums. So there's that. And smaller works, of course. What do you mean by smaller works? Like, like this fragments of sculptures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like a piece on its own, but it's mm -hmm. like 30 some inches by 40 inches, not 30 inches high or something like that. This is from the series. This is the last one. The other ones are in collections already. Um, but do I think about it? I, I, I don't think so much about like making one piece or one thing, whether it's small or large. I really think about the larger body of work and maybe a big chunk of that larger body of work is a big installation. And out of the installation comes different, maybe collages or smaller sculptures. I've made a lot of shadow boxes in the past. They come out of a larger body of work. And mm -hmm. yes, some are more sellable or more easily transportable and more kind of friendly in a domestic setting than larger ones, right? And so there are, but I, I really kind of, when it, when it comes to kind of being aware of this or thinking, I do think about a kind of a larger body of work, a bigger project. And often it takes three, four, five, seven years to make one large body of work. Wow. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the proudest moment of your career so far? I don't know if there was ever like kind of, I was ever proud of like, wow, this is, a, you know, something. I get happy if I get a grant and I have a, you know, <laughs> a, a big budget that I could work with or I get happy if something sells and it goes into a good collection. Of course, those are, but they're, I don't know if it has anything to do with pride or, you know, being kind of thinking about myself in a certain way. Yeah, I don't think I had a proud a moment of, of, of where I was really proud. <laughs> You've never had a moment where you're like, this is it, I've made it. No, no, for sure. And I ne that I never, there, no. there was never a moment like that. Mm. Mm -mm. Because I don't know if anybody could make it. And I don't know if, who is a big artist? Because I think making it means there's so many facets or so many different ways in which one could be, you know, 
it could be made. What is the word? Like I've made it. Like there's so it, it's it's not one thing. It's not like oh I'm in this biannual or yeah I don't know I've had a show. At, and there's so many ways in which you could you know think that you've succeeded. But I think for me it's like oh I did this wow great oh my god I want that. It's like this kind of ambition just grows and grows right, and then sometimes it doesn't happen. I just kept going. <laughs> You've also done quite a bit of teaching.、Uh, where have you taught? I taught at different places over the years. I think at this time I got this teaching fellowship in St. Louis. I was teaching at Washington University in St. Louis, and then after that I came back to LA, and I taught in different UC University of California art programs, and then I got a, like a more Full faculty teaching position in Boston at Boston University. So I was there for five years, or back and forth. I was half the time there and half the time in LA.、Uh, so you're still teaching now? Uh huh.、Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm teaching at two University of California. One is in UC Riverside, and the other one is UC San Diego. Okay. So what's been a hard truth that you have had to learn as an artist? Hmm. There's so many hard truths that you can never count on sale money. <laughs> that you can never, you know. I think having very low steady income is so much better than having a lot of sales in one time because that could come and go. But、mm -hmm. with a steady low income, you could always pay your bills. There's that, and I think art world could be a little bit cold and cruel too. <laughs> In general, I think, and I have a lot of friends that I've known for more than half my life, and they're always supportive. So there's that. I don't know if there's so many other hard truths. Like, what what are you thinking? <laughs> oh, I mean, I feel like with this podcast, I've taken a step back because I've had a pretty slow year in terms of art.、Mm -hmm. There's like little bits trickle in, you know, here and there, but nothing major. And everything I've applied for for next year has fallen through.、Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I guess I'll be a podcaster then. I don't know. <laughs> I'm giving up my studio, you know, just an expense that I can't cover right now. And yeah, so I guess the hard truth is that it's like everything at once or totally nothing. And you just have to、uh -huh. deal with it. Yeah, that's yes, yes. That is so true. Yeah, you don't have enough time because everything's coming at you. Yeah. Or then there's silence. Yes, and that's really hard. But in both、yeah. direction, I think is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's also been hard to know sometimes what to say no to. Like, should I take this opportunity or should I not?、Mm、hmm. Because not everything that comes up for me, at least, is directly related to the contemporary art world. It's like art adjacent things, maybe, maybe、mm -hmm. public art that I have no experience in, and I'm like,、mm, I don't know, is that is that a good idea? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, what's what's a piece of advice you would give to a young emerging artist today who's wanting to make? Big work. Well, I think it was a student. It was pretty recent. A young artist was talking about money a lot, and I was like, "Well, if you want to be rich, 
or if you want to be famous. And of course, there are plenty of rich and famous artists. We could name, you know, like 10 in the next 15 seconds. But if those are your goals, you're in the wrong business. Right? Yep. And so I think a lot of, I don't know, maybe because they are so young or something, they think like, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to become a famous artist and I'm going to like sell work for, you know, $1.5 million each. And, you know, they're thinking about these things and it's just so not realistic. And it's going to be a hard fall if that's their objective. Right. Mm. And so, you know, do, do this because you love it. And because you're doing something you love, you'll be good at it. And because you're good at it, you're going to love it. And hopefully, you know, fame and money will follow as a result of this. But most of the time, not, right? But at the end of the day, you're doing what you love. And so there's that. And being an artist, I think, is... Um, you know, other than that, some of the things that we talked about, what I love about being an artist is I could have a certain lifestyle that most people cannot. And by that, I mean, I have the studio that I'm in right now. It's five steps away from my kitchen, my mm-hmm. main house. So on the property, I built a studio and I have the house. And I know a lot of people work from home now, but this is a luxury that a lot of people don't get to have. Um, I work two days a week and I'm able to pay my bills. And financially, I cannot ask for more than that. As long as I have that, everything else is just icing, right? Everything else. And so it's about a lifestyle that is right for you. A lot of people, even though this sounds fabulous, this is not the right lifestyle. Some people really want to have security, financially, mentally, emotionally. And also some people want to have a family. It's not that I know a lot of artists, you know, female artists that have babies and they're amazing artists and they are very active. So it's not that you cannot have it. It's just that being an artist is a different type of not just a job, but a lifestyle. Yeah. And for me, this this really, really works. And nothing is steady Everything is, you know, I have to kind of schedule my own thing, but I'm absolutely free. And I have amazing friends that are crazy that, you know, I think like at my age, a lot that people lose friends as they get older. For me, I gain more friends as I got older. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, a certain type of lifestyle that does not fit for everybody. So that's another thing I would say for young artists. I remember when I just got out of grad school, I was working for a pretty well-known artist. And one of the things that I was in charge of was throwing great parties. Like he had this amazing studio in downtown LA, big open space, and he would often throw parties, uh, you know, guest list of like 100 people. And I would order the food and all the, you know, the the drinks and be in charge of the musicians that are going to play there and all that kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, this is what I want. This is how I want to live. And I want to have a studio where it's both live and work, where I could just like be in my pajamas and do what I want to do and just get lost in that and then have 
amazing parties, you know? This is a great lifestyle for me. So I think that's very important. Some of my other friends, I, I know that they will not be good at this. It's not that they're good at it. I think they will be lost in some ways. I think the instability would drive them crazy, I think. You know, many, many years, I didn't have insurance. I didn't have health insurance. And I have, it's not that I didn't want it. It's just like, I have to be okay with that. And I'm not going to go and work uh, full time because I want health insurance. Yeah, that kind of stuff, right? So you have to be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, uncertainty is a major part of life as an artist. Yes, but along with uncertainty comes a lot of freedom. Mm. You know. So do you throw lavish parties in your studio now? We like to. <laughs> we like to. <laughs> yeah. Not that many, but but we like doing that. We like socializing. I love going to openings. I love running into people I've not seen for a long time at openings. And I love talking about art nonstop. We talk about, me and my husband, we talk about art nonstop. Yeah. And it's just, like, we don't even like to think about like talking about art. It's just who we are. Yeah. <laughs> Is there something you're working on now, some upcoming project? Yes, I'm working on this big installation where I have a lot of these plexiglass mirror panels. And on the plexiglass are these um, spells, text that's uh, from different spells, magic spells that I've cut, uh, made vinyl letterings with, and I pasted it onto the mirror. So I'm making a big installations where, you know, the exhibition space is going to be just full with these texts. What are the spells for? All the spells are collected from this show Bewitched. I don't know if you remember. Um, yeah. yeah. So there's this one character, Aunt Clara, who is losing her power and she's becoming immortal. And so the spells are collected from, from her and all the spells that have to do with having a body or the body being in one space and another space. <laughs> mm. So that's what I'm working on right now. And it's going to be done in two parts. There will be two exhibitions, part one and part two. And so one's opening at this artist-run space called Timeshare in middle of January. And the second one is opening at another space called Council Street. And that is opening end of March. So that's okay. what I'm working on. Just after deinstalling that show, I came back and now I'm working on this. And, and then a few others to come after that. Awesome. Speaking of magic, if you had magic powers and you could have any project, like your ultimate dream project in terms of, you know, budget, location, collaboration, whatever, what would it be? What would you want to do? I don't know. What I would love, this is what I wish for a lot in the studio. I wish I was taller, longer, <laughs> and more muscular. I wish I had a third arm, you know, like <laughs> so that I could like carry bigger stuff and don't have to depend on other people to help me move things. This is what I would love. I mean, like today I'm like, oh my God, I wish I was stronger. That's what I wish for. Wow. Okay. That's, <laughs> haven't had that one before. I love that. <laughs> and it's just, I'm just, I'm five, five. So I'm not really, but I'm just medium, you know, but I, I, there, there are people that have long arms, you know, that could carry big white stuff. I wish I had that. And a third arm would be amazing <laughs> <laughs> okay well uh, 
I'm afraid that's not something, unless you hit the gym and start lifting heavy weights. I could be a little bit stronger, but not that much. (laughs) (laughs) Is there somewhere that people can see your work right now? Like today, the show in Sacramento just came down. So uh, you could go to my website and see my recent work. You could go to my Instagram. What's your website on your Instagram? Um, Wanjulim.com. And then uh, Wanjulim Studio is the mm-hmm. Instagram. Yeah, we'll put the links in the show notes. Sometimes I forget some things that are up. Well, I mean, your work is in various books. That's how I found you in the Art Now it- Tashin books. Yes. There's another one coming out also by Biden. I just learned about it. So that's what I'm thinking. It's something like contemporary woman, woman sculptor. I, I know that the word woman and sculptor is part of it. So that's coming out soonish in 2024. Mm-hmm. So you could see that. Mm, great. Cool. Well, thank you, Anju, for coming and talking <laughs> to me. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Love it was fun. To you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was Wanju Lim, based in Los Angeles. You can check out her work on her website, wanjulim.com, that's W-O-N-J-U-L-I-M, and on her Instagram at Wanjulim Studio. And if you're in LA, you can see her exhibition at Council Street Gallery that opens on March 30th, 2024. As always, you can find all the links in the show notes. You've been listening to the Installation Art Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you're listening from and leave us a five-star review. This helps others find the show and it lets me know that the content is providing value. Thanks for being here and until next time.